All right. Well, it is 6.30 by my clock, so we're going to get rolling. Uh, as y'all kind of filter in, we don't have any handouts, so just pop a squat wherever. Um, I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to get our running start into this week's content, and then we will go from there. So let's pray together. Father, I thank you that we have recorded for us, um, frankly, some difficult instructions uh, and some uh, problematic texts that are um, at times difficult for us to comprehend and then even more difficult for us to apply into our lives. Um, but I thank you that those texts exist because I know that you have written them for our instruction. And so, Father, I pray that tonight as we were talking about wisdom literature, I pray that you would enlighten our hearts and our minds through your Holy Spirit, that you would illuminate us so that we might comprehend and then be able to apply these texts rightly into our lives. And so, God, we want you to, you want, we want you to do something here uh, that we cannot do under our own power. And uh, so we ask that you would be here and meet with us. And as is my custom, I would just ask that you would pray for me, uh, that the words that I say would be beneficial, they would be accurate, they'd be correct, and that uh, we would have uh, the strength to endure an hour of conversation about wisdom literature. So if you would, pray for me. Father, I thank you for the opportunity to be able to teach, and I thank you for the fact that we have uh, the greatest teacher residing within us, uh, your Holy Spirit. So God, I pray that I would be filled with your spirit, even as we are talking about wisdom literature uh, tonight. God, I pray that the things that I say would be only what it is that you would want me to say, and what I say would be accurate and be beneficial, and that there would be nothing out of harmony with the gospel. And we pray that this would be edifying for us and beneficial for us, and it would be honoring to you. And we ask all this in your son's name. Amen. Amen. All right, so let's get our running start. Um, just so you know, we are basically about halfway, oh, went right past it. We're about halfway through our material for the semester. Um, it doesn't quite feel like it, but we're basically there. In fact, this week at HLG is midterms, and so that's how I know we're on pace. Um, so last week we looked at the narrative genre of literature. We looked at narrative literature where basically um, we're talking about um, the major uh, characteristics of the genre and we talked about prescriptive and descriptive texts and how those are different and how those lead us to this point where we have to make prayerful preparation good observations and then write interpretations and that was a, a big deal for us when it comes to narrative because there's a lot of details um, and then we looked at ruth as the example tonight we're moving on to wisdom literature and i do want to just preview a couple of things here within wisdom literature spoiler is going to be proverbs we're going to talk briefly about Proverbs. I'll send this to you so you can have it. Um, we will talk about Proverbs tonight because we have to. Two weeks from now, we're going to talk about nothing but Proverbs. So we're going to kind of get a double dose of Proverbs, and the reason that we're doing that is because, frankly, Proverbs is a problematic book for us as Christians today, as Western thinkers. It's just we typically get tripped up with it. So we're gonna spend some extra time there. In between those two is poetic uh, literature as well. So we're looking at poetry. How we read poetry is gonna heavily influence how we read the Proverbs because they are poetic. So that's kind of the, the idea behind why we're doing what we're doing. So tonight we're gonna to talk about the characteristics of poet, uh, or excuse me, not poetry, of uh, wisdom literature. And we're gonna talk about a life that is well lived. Like that's the whole goal of wisdom literature is to teach us how to live life well. And then we're gonna to run to everyone's favorite book to illustrate how to read wisdom literature. And we're gonna look at Job, okay? I love Job. That book is rough and I love it. So we're gonna look at that. Um, so here is uh, our run and start for the last two weeks. We talked about the meta-narrative two weeks ago and that we believe that the Bible is a unified story about Jesus. We also talked about the importance of applying scripture. Every time we encounter scripture, there should be an expectation that we are going to apply that into our lives. We have to have that as a very foundational mantra right out the gate. We have to anticipate that we are going to apply it every time we encounter scripture. Whenever we encounter scripture, one of the most beneficial things we can do is figure out what kind of genre of literature we're looking at. Am I looking at a comic book or am I looking at the Help Wanted ads, right? Those are gonna be read differently. So identifying the genre, which is what we're doing the rest of the semester. Then we really talked about how the narratives teach us through the details. We have to observe details in narratives. 
Um, we talked about how the authors very rarely editorialize. They very rarely step out of the narrative and directly address readers and say, hey, pay attention to this next bit and then get back into the narrative. They very rarely do that. They just tell the narrative. And so that's really important for us, which leads us to prescriptive versus descriptive texts. We talked about Jephthah and his rash vow. Whatever comes out of my house when I get back from war and God has given us peace, I'm going to offer as a burnt offering and out comes his daughter. Like, we're not meant to emulate that. That's a descriptive text. Yeah? All right. So here's the deal. Everything we have learned so far about those general interpretation guidelines, like how we generally approach scripture and with narrative, we need to hold on to those things when we come to tonight because we're going to encounter a lot of those same problems. We're going to see the details in the narrative of Job that we're going to have to see rightly and make good observations before we can interpret rightly. Word? Word. Let us talk about wisdom literature. I'm going to refer to it as wisdom literature in general, basically because wisdom genre doesn't roll off the tongue nearly as well. But when I say the genre of wisdom literature or wisdom literature, that's what I'm talking about. So what is that? In general, wisdom literature speaks to our condition as humans. And that may sound like really pie in the sky, but wisdom literature is all about dealing with what we encounter in life, in reality. Yeah. And because that's true, it's going to talk about good things and bad things. It's going to talk about the problems that we encounter because if we're meant to live well and we're meant to learn from what the scripture tells us, it's going to have to cover a pretty wide swath of topics. Yeah. So number one, wisdom literature speaks to our condition as humans. And here's the next thing. And I want us to really think about this. Wisdom literature is actually the widest reaching form of cultural literature. Here's what I mean by that. Every culture in history has some kind of uh, ideology that leads to what they determine as good living, of living well, right? Our culture is no different. What Americans in the you know, 18th century said was a well-lived life looks a little bit different than what it looks like for us in 2022, does it not? Like, so we can talk about what inclusivity and representation and just the whole gamut of LGBTQ issues includes and like how we navigate that well. Well, that's what wisdom looks like in our day. A hundred years ago, that may not have even made sense. Every culture across time and space has an idea about what good living looks like, what a well-lived life is. If that's true, then there's something that's really clear that I want us to see from the very beginning here. Wisdom literature is actually incredibly useful in evangelism. In evangelism. If every culture has an idea of this is what good living looks like, then us as Christians, as believers who are seeing how God has ordained life to work, and we are following that according to his plan, then we're going to run up against how culture says life is meant to be lived. But I have more of a, uh, a foundation to stand on to say, well, I'm not appealing to my own rationality or my own subjective truth. I'm appealing to something that people have appealed to for literal millennia. And here's how I see that working out in life. This is actually one of the most immediate connections you have with people when you're doing evangelism. And a lot of times we don't even use it. Are you seeing how that could be something that's really beneficial that if someone's going through a really difficult time, yeah, you don't go and beat them up with the Bible because that's not what they need. You also probably shouldn't just smack them over the head with wisdom literature, but you can tell them what wise living is. And then the next step is, man, can I tell you why I do these things, why I live this way, where I get that from? And now you're in a conversation about the Bible. That's an evangelistic conversation, yeah? So wisdom literature bridges a gap way more than we typically think. And so that's why it's important for us. This is the reason why I've kind of front-loaded it in the grand scheme of things. Last week, we looked at the narrative genre, which is about 60% of the Bible. We're looking at three books in the Bible, but it's that important. So that's why we're looking at it now. All right, so here's a reality that we need to square with. Wisdom literature is typically and generally, frequently, avoided by modern readers. When's the last time you read Ecclesiastes? 
How many of y'all have read Ecclesiastes in the last two months? How many of you have read Ecclesiastes in the last year? A few more. What about Job? All right, so for all the hands that went up, how many of y'all intentionally read Ecclesiastes or Job and it was not part of your Bible reading plan for the year? Three. You see how that works? The reason why we avoid it is because it's kind of a Debbie Downer, right? I don't really know how to interpret this, much less apply it to my life. And I think, frankly, we've just, we're scared off by something that we shouldn't be scared off by, right? I think if we understand how this works together with Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, you'll be much more well-equipped to go read Job next time. Yep. Here's the next step. We're going to talk about the word chokmah. Chokmah. Chokmah is the word in Hebrew for wisdom. Um, however, what that word really speaks to is skill or um, applied knowledge. Um, in Exodus chapter 34, I didn't write this down, so hopefully I'm actually not lying to you. Uh, close. That's not right. We'll get there in a second. Um, in, the, in the last half of Exodus, there is a um, section where um, God is telling um, Israel how to create the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. This is how you make the tent. That's at least the second one already. Um, this is how you make the tent. This is how you make the coverings. Here's the furnishings. Here's the poles. Here's the beams. Here's the altar. I mean, like he describes in detail all this stuff that Israel is supposed to make. I want to read for us Exodus chapter 31, which is where this comes into play. Exodus 31 verses 1 through 3. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, Bezalel, this Hebrew cat, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, from the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God with ability and intelligence. That word for ability is chokmah. It's wisdom. You will see over and over in Scripture when David and his mighty men that were skilled in war, what they actually are, are wise. They have chokmah. So what we're talking about, whenever we talk about Hokmah in the Old Testament or uh, Sophia in, in Greek in the New Testament, this idea of wisdom, it's about applying knowledge. It's not about knowing facts and figures because that's not enough. Hold on to that idea because it's going to be really big, especially now you see why evangelism and this make connections about how to live life well. Big deal. All right. Any questions about that? Rock on. So here's the... The biggest break that we can make about wisdom literature, it generally takes two forms. And we'll put both of them up here on the screen so we don't get um, sidetracked by it. There's two general forms. There's this didactic or practical, that's one category. There's didactic and practical, or there's this philosophical and speculative. Here's what I mean by that. When we talk about didactic or practical uh, wisdom literature, this is like the book of Proverbs. These are general observations. If A, then B. If you do X, Y will result. It's much more a list of do this thing or don't do this thing. You see how it's really practical? And it just kind of lays that over a situation and says, well, this is what you should do. It teaches us didactic. That's what that word means. And then there's this philosophical or speculative. And philosophical or speculative wisdom literature, what it's doing is it is inviting the reader and the audience to come and to reflect on life as a whole. Observe the world around you and then forces you to say, so what do you think about that? Think about it this way. Whenever you go to like a freshman level philosophy class at universities, um, they are not teaching you what to think generally. What philosophy classes, logic classes, um, rhetoric classes, what they are forcing you to do is to think about how you think. They give you a scenario. Okay, here's a scenario. What do you say in, in response to that? How should we do X, Y, or Z? You have to consider the problem. You have to consider a solution. You have to consider the effects of that problem. And that's why it's speculative. It's this philosophical kind of wisdom literature. It's going to invite the reader to come and observe and just make a determination about what happened. You see how those are different? Proverbs tells you 
do and do not. Ecclesiastes and Job is going to say, well, what do you think about this now? Given the situation that we see and as we observe life, what do you think? And that's how wisdom literature in general, whether it's American wisdom literature or ancient or modern, whatever, it's going to take generally those two kinds of forms. And so what we need, we've already talked about it, there's the books, Job and Ecclesiastes are that philosophical or speculative and then the didactic or practical is Ecclesiastes, or sorry, is, uh, is Proverbs. What we need to see is that those three together, they create an environment for us as readers to explore life's difficulties and God's faithfulness. Let me, let me be really clear. We're going to hit on this again later, but I'm going to say it right now. We are perfectly equipped to encounter life and its difficulties if you have the Spirit of God within you. Well, you do. But that's something very different than, than saying, what do you think about all of these things? Are you just going to punt on thinking about it? Are you going to punt on learning something from those experiences? Wisdom literature as a whole is going to invite us in to say, here's life as it is. You've experienced it. Here's how the Bible talks about it. What are we going to do with it now? What are you going to do with it now? That's the application portion. We have got to get to that. So we're going to talk about this um, right before we explore Job in detail, as much detail as, you know, 20 minutes allows. Um, we're going to talk about that again, but I wanted to bring it up here. Yes? Say again? No, 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 no. I taught through Job, and it took me 14 sermons, and I covered uh, chapters 4 through 14 in one sermon. It was a, it was a chunk. All right. All right, so let's talk about biblical wisdom literature. Let's talk about these three. Those three together describe a well-lived life. That's what wisdom literature is about, and we need all three. And here, let me define what I mean by a well-lived life. A well-lived life is one that pursues God's design for our lives. Not what we think is wise or rational, or a, a good idea, but according to how God has laid life out and orchestrated it to work. Why do we as Christians believe that marriage is between one man and one woman? Well, it's just a good idea. Well, that's a pretty poor defense, right? Because there's like all sorts of texts that tell us and show us why that is God's design. Yes? And so we're pursuing what God would have us do. If he has created life and the world to function in a certain way and has revealed to us through nature and specifically in special revelation through the word, then we should be obliged to follow that. Yes? And so wisdom literature is really going to talk about that in particular. Yeah? So let me give us a really, really broad categorization of these three books. Proverbs gives us clear guidelines, right? This is observational details. But here's the deal. Those general guidelines, and they're clear, they do not guarantee that we will be free from suffering. Yes? Like, they don't guarantee that you're going to be free from suffering. But if you read Proverbs, you very well could come away with this idea of, oh, all I've got to do is the right things, and it's all going to be good. Well... What Ecclesiastes does is it provides a counterbalance to those simplistic statements from Proverbs. And we'll explore that here in a little bit, but basically this is uh, the author of Ecclesiastes says, but yeah, that's generally how it works, and you should fear God and pursue wisdom. Like, you should do that. That's the right answer. But what about this other scenario? Incidentally, who, who wrote Ecclesiastes? Solomon. Who wrote Proverbs? Solomon. So he has given us both sides of wisdom literature that really constitute the, uh, the real meat of our wisdom literature in the scriptures, yeah? And he's providing two different vantage points on that, yeah? Um, Ecclesiastes, let me just say this real quick. I'll mention it at the very end. There are three main topics that Ecclesiastes are going to bring up over and over again. Number one, there is this inevitable march of time. You can't stop from getting older. Who here has tried? It's not worth it. Because you're the inevitable march of time. It is you are inevitably going to get older, and there's nothing you can do about that, right? Here's the second topic it's going to bring up. 
not only are you going to get old, you are going to die. You, your family, everything you love is going to die. Welcome to Wednesday night, right? And this is why we avoid Ecclesiastes, because we read that kind of junk and we're like, I don't want to do this. So the inevitable march of time, the inevitability of death, but then Ecclesiastes is also going to talk about this seemingly random nature of life. So Proverbs tells you, hey, if you live righteously, it will go well for you. And then Solomon is going to turn around and say, yeah, but I have seen a wicked man live for way longer than he should have, and this dude that was really good died when he was 30. So we're going to have to square with all three of those. Those topics are going to come up a little bit later. Just hold on to them. And then lastly, Job, what he does, he helps us wrestle with whether or not God is good and just. Right? You see how I'm laying that out as like the didactic with Proverbs, clear guidelines, but then Ecclesiastes and Job are like, yes, but let's think about that well. I'm going to invite you to consider these things and let's talk about it. Yes? All right. So we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about each one of those three in a little bit more detail with Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. And then we're going to look at Job as an example. Do we have any questions so far? It's as clear as mud. Fantastic. All right, so let us talk about Proverbs. Proverbs contains a general list of best practices. I think that's good. Right, go read Proverbs, especially the last half, starting in chapter 10 through 31. A whole lot of short, pithy statements, and we're like, yeah, sounds good. I agree. I wouldn't want to do that, so I'm going to hold on to this statement and say I should do otherwise. Yeah, you just do what Proverbs tells you to do. Um, what it's going to do is going to portray life as a series of causes and effects. If you do A, then B will follow. If A, then B, right? Let me give you an example. This is Proverbs chapter 1, verses 32 and 33. Listen for that if A, then B scenario. For the simple are killed by their turning away, and the complacency of fools destroys them. But whoever listens to me will dwell secure and will be at ease without dread of disaster. So if A in this scenario would be what for that first half? For the simple are killed by their turning away and the complacency of fools destroys them. What's the first cause? If you turn away and you don't listen, what's the result? What's the effect? They're going to be destroyed. Conversely, the next verse, which is meant to be read together as, uh, as couplets, but whoever listens to me, wisdom, whoever listens to me will dwell secure and be at ease, right? That's how the Proverbs generally lay out, and, and more times than not, it betrays life as just a series of cause and effect. If we know the cause, I can predict the effect. If all I know is the effect, I have a pretty good idea of what caused it, yes? We're going to see that in Job. Hold on to that. Not only does Proverbs portray life as a series of cause and effects, it also provides us direct insight into areas that are not really directly addressed in other areas of Scripture, right? What are really good texts that tell us on how to raise our children? Maybe we go to the, the Shema and say that we should teach our children these laws and that it should be bound on our heads and over our doorpost and that you teach it to your children. Okay, cool, but how do I do that? Proverbs will step in and will show you train a child up in the way that they will go and they're not going to depart from it. Now, does it give a whole lot of detail with that? Well, about as much as you're going to find elsewhere. Proverbs is going to talk about sex. Proverbs talks about marriage. Proverbs talks about how to find a wife or a husband that is not some dirtbag, right? Say again? No, correct. Yeah. Yeah, so Proverbs is going to directly address some of these areas that we don't get nearly as well-rounded in the rest of Scripture because it's about encountering the human condition and how we inhabit life. And here's the biggest thing that we've got to understand. The fear of the Lord is the foundational element for understanding Proverbs, right? Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom or the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So what do I mean by the fear of the Lord? What do I mean by fear? Right out here is this street. Larry, about how far is that street? 30 feet? 40? 
The road is right there. My children on Sunday morning sit right here. I want my kids to fear the street, but I don't want them cowering over here because the road is just on the other side of the window over here, right? I want them that when they approach the street, that they have a healthy respect that this could kill you. I do want them to recognize it is that important, but I don't want them so fearful that they are just cowering in the corner and unable to move. That's not healthy, right? Same thing with the stove. There's all sorts of benefits from a stove or fire, but you better not play with it. It is gonna mess you up. The fear of the Lord is the same thing. You can approach him, he is gracious, he is good, but he will also kill you, right? He will also judge. We're gonna look at that in Job here in a little bit. Um, this is uh, from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe uh, whenever the kids are talking to Aslan, or I'm sorry, they're talking to the beavers about Aslan and uh, they're asking like, okay, so what's he like? And, you know, they're trying to discover this and they ask Beaver like, well, is he tame? I think it's the word, is he tame? And Beaver, Mr. Beaver's like, no, he's a lion, but he is good. He's not tame, but he is good. Like that's healthy fear. I'm not gonna go pet a lion. I'll look at it from a distance, but if it gets out of the cage and it's, there's nothing between me and it, boy, howdy, I'm gonna change my posture. That's what Proverbs tells us, change your posture. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Yeah, there it is. And we will have an entire week on this, two weeks from now, with Proverbs getting into more detail. Yeah? So, big 10,000-foot elevation view of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes then wrestles with all the clean portrayal of life that Proverbs says. If you do X, then Y will happen. And then Ecclesiastes goes, yeah, but not always. To that point, let me read for us Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 9 and 11. Ecclesiastes 2, 9 through 11. This is the, the, the speaker that we hear through the vast majority of the book. He says this, So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. So I wasn't getting just wild where I wasn't living well. Like, my wisdom was with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep them from, or from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was the reward for all my toil. You're like, all right, you worked well, you worked hard, you got great things. Verse 11, then I considered all that my hands had done in the toil that I had experienced, uh, expended in doing it, and my hands had done in the toil I had uh, endured, and behold, it was hevel. It was vanity. It was meaningless. We're going to talk about that word in a little bit. Like, hang on, guy. You just told me that you didn't keep your heart from any pleasure, and now you're saying it's meaningless? Like, doesn't Proverbs say that if we live well, then there's going to be satisfaction? And here the author's like, yeah, no. That's not how this works, always. He goes on to say, And behold, my van it was vanity and striving after the wind. When's the last time y'all caught the wind by the tail? What'd you do with it? put it in a jar and use it later. You can't do anything with that. Like, that's not how this works. And behold, it was vanity and striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Wow. Debbie Downer there, Solomon. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 15. In my vain life, my hevel life, meaningless life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Proverbs, what you got to say about that? And so we see wisdom literature is saying, but this is what the world is like when we inhabit it, and we've got to do something with it. Yeah? So let's talk about something here. Solomon is the one who wrote both Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, and this guy is drawing from vast experience that you cannot touch. Your greatest backyard barbecue soiree that you've ever thrown was garbage compared to like his worst breakfast. Right? Go read the accounts of Solomon when they are literally slaughtering tens of thousands of bulls, and his parties don't stop. I don't care how much you save up for for one party, that guy will outdo you in one night and then he will do it again the next night and again the next night. So whatever experiences you think you have accumulated, it's nothing compared to Solomon's. 
So when he says that I have kept every pleasure in front of my eyes, I haven't stopped enjoying anything, and then says, yeah, but this is what I've discovered. It's all hevel. Talk about that in just a second. So here's what's going on with Ecclesiastes. There are two characters. There's an author, and then there's the speaker. The author shows up in verse 1, and then he shows up later at the very end of the book. Let me read that for us. Ecclesiastes 1.1. The words of the preacher. That word there in Hebrew is kohelet, and that just means the one who speaks or addresses a crowd. Incidentally, that's where we get our name for the book Ecclesiastes. Um, uh, Basically, the Greek word for this book is the word you would use for the person who is speaking to a crowd, and it sounds like Ecclesiastes, right? So that's where it comes from. But the Kohelet is the speaker for the rest of the time. So verse 1 of the book is the author, and then the speaker has the whole book all the way until, turn to the very end, Go to chapter 12, and we'll pick it up in verse 9. So this guy has full run for 12 chapters, and then the author picks back up, and he's going to summarize everything. Verse 9 of chapter 12. Besides being wise, the preacher, or the Kohelet, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying, and arranging many proverbs with great care. Who is that guy? Solomon. He's talking about Solomon. He's talking about himself, right? He also arranged other Proverbs. He taught everybody wisdom. As he winks at everybody and points at himself, like, that's me, right? But he doesn't want the final word to be like this Debbie Downer Hevel. Um, what he says there in verse 13, this is the end of the matter. All has been heard. What are we supposed to do? Fear God. It's the very first thing. Fear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. So for all that the author of Ecclesiastes is wanting to summarize. He says, at the end of the day, Proverbs is right. You should fear God. You should obey Him. You should live with wisdom. But you have got to understand that this is not how life always works. Yes? Um, Yeah, let me say it this way. Ecclesiastes demonstrates that the only thing we actually have control over in our lives is our attitude and our obedience. That's it. There is this inevitable march of time. Everyone will die. And life is going to seemingly be random. And you can do nothing about any of those three, ultimately. But you can have joy, and you can be obedient. Yes? And so this is where that speculative kind of wisdom is inviting us to explore life as we see it. Any questions about Ecclesiastes? I've referenced that word hevel. Um, Hevel is the word that you see in your Bible that's translated as meaningless, or vanity, and that word literally means smoke or vapor. Life is a vapor, it's smoke. When you're looking at smoke, you think you kind of got it figured out of what it's gonna look like. Give it two seconds and does it look the exact same thing as it would two seconds ago? No, it's completely different. Well, what if you try to like grab some smoke? What's gonna happen to that smoke? It's gonna, literally, it's gonna slip through your fingers, you open it up and it's gone. So you may think you've got it figured out, but you don't, because time is marching on, everyone will die, and life seemingly is random, and it's meaningless in the sense like you cannot clearly comprehend every single thing that's going on. So what we need is wisdom to address those areas. See how all this is being bound together? Yep. All right, so that's Ecclesiastes. Let's talk about Job. This is, again, very broad, broadly speaking about Job. Job's central tension is that Job is righteous, yet he suffers immensely. Yes, chapters 1 and 2 talk about some horrible things that happens to this dude. All of his kids die. All of his animals die. All of his crops are burnt. He is stricken with sores, and what you see later, I think it's in chapter 9, he has a broken piece of a pot and he scrapes the pus out. Right? It's bad. His wife in chapter 2 basically says, you know what, this is so bad, you should just curse God and die. That's going to be the best thing for you to do right now. Right? And yet, the tension is, what happens before all that befalls Job? What do we see happening? Somebody tell me what Job chapter 1 is about. Where is the setting of Job chapter 1? It's in heaven. Who is speaking? God. Hey, have you considered my servant Job? 
He's righteous, blameless, pretty swell guy, right? So we actually see that like the tension is dude is suffering immensely and he didn't do anything wrong. Okay, we'll talk about that. So what's happening there is that Job is now providing a narrative structure for us to then hang Proverbs and Ecclesiastes on. Are you seeing that? So this is why we covered the narrative genre last week, because we've got to make good observations and see details and to be able to trace themes. We've got to see all of that to be able to rightly interpret Job because it's in the narrative form, right? And so we're just hanging on those core ideas from Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, and now it plays out in a narrative. And we've got to see all that um, come to pass. All right, I'm running out of time, so let's move on. Job is never given insight into why he's suffering. We, as the readers, we get to see a conversation about the suffering and his righteousness, but nowhere in the book are we as the audience or Job ever told, here's why this suffering is taking place. You see how understanding how to read narratives is really important whenever we read a narrative that doesn't tell us the point, like we're meant to see the point through the details. Right? But we're never actually seeing why uh, Job is suffering the way he is. And so the reader is left to wrestle with the arguments that are made by Job's three friends, Bildad, Eliphaz, and Zophar. And then we have um, uh, Elihu show up later in chapter like 26, or no, not 26, but like 36. Whenever he shows up, like we're left to wrestle with the arguments they make and go, well, which one's right? We'll talk about that in a minute. All right, so here's where I want to give you our general principles about interpreting wisdom literature. We're now getting to that, then we'll look at Job. Here's the main things. Remember that wisdom literature is inspired by God and is inerrant. We have to hold to that. Because if we say, no, God made a mistake in this area, then we can write off anything we don't agree with in Proverbs. We can say, actually, no, that didn't happen the way that I thought it was going to. That must be wrong. We can't do that because what Ecclesiastes explains is, yeah, there's going to be exceptions to the rule, as you may think it, because that's how life is. Recognize that wisdom literature is inspired by God, and we must adopt a posture of faith. Here's what I mean by that. Even when you are reading Ecclesiastes for the 10th time and you don't comprehend exactly what's going on, our posture should be one of saying, God, I don't understand this, but I trust you. I don't know why I am experiencing this suffering or why it feels like I need to be learning about this suffering, but I trust that you are going to use it. That's what I mean by a posture of faith. Don't be skeptical and just say, well, it's not for me. There's no use for it because then you're going to be ill-equipped whenever suffering inevitably happens. Yes, because we are talking about a well-lived life. If you haven't gone through suffering, just wait. You will. Right? We're going to talk about that on Sunday morning whenever uh, Anthony is preaching in 1 Thessalonians. So hold on to that. So wisdom is not some impersonal force. Chokmah is an attribute of God that we are meant to emulate. It is written for our instruction so that we can see what a well-lived life looks like and then go and do like likewise. Yes? So this is why it's important to have that posture of faith. Proverbs, again, and these general truths that are situational and occasional. We'll talk more about that two weeks from now. And then I've already mentioned this meaninglessness in Ecclesiastes does not mean that there is meaningless. There is no meaning. It just means that what life uh, is doing to you and how you can understand it is not clear. It's like smoke. Try to grab some smoke. It's hevel. It's just going to slip right through your fingers. You might think you've got it figured out, but until you're on the other side, you're not going to understand it. Yeah? So, remember, wisdom literature is from God. Adopt a posture of faith. Whenever you're reading Proverbs, recognize that there are situations in which it is going to directly apply, and there are other times where it's going to be a lot more difficult. And that's why we need wisdom, chokmah, skill, applied knowledge in how to apply that into our life. Yes? All right. 709, we're going to run through Job. Are you ready for it? It's great. No. I'll crank it up to 11 right now. 
All right. So Job gives us a narrative structure in which to explore wisdom literature. Here's how Job is basically worked out as an outline. So chapters one and two is Job, his character, his, introdu his introduction, as well as like his suffering is introduced. He is blameless. I'm going to take away all this stuff. He's going to suffer. Everything dies. Chapter three is Job deep in despair. His boys, Bildad, Eliphaz, and Zophar, come and sit with him in the ashes for a week, and not a single one of them say a word. And the first words we hear is Job saying, just, I wish I was never born. Curse the day that my mom gave birth to me. Welcome to Job in wisdom literature. And that despair, frankly, continues for about 35 more chapters, okay? What happens from chapters 4 through 25 are these three cycles of where Job's friends, Bildad, Eliphaz, and Zophar, in that order, Bildad will speak, Job will respond. Eliphaz will speak, Job will respond. Zophar will speak, Job will respond. And that's one cycle. And then we do that again for a second time. And then we do that again for a third time. And every time that we complete a cycle, these guys get more argumentative and they get more mean. That's basically what's going on in Job. And then we see in chapter 26, Job gives this long extended speech for about five or so chapters where he is just defending himself. He's railing against God. He's actually kind of blaming God, but not really. He's just expressing he doesn't understand and he is mad and he is sad and he is grieving. He rolls on for like five chapters. And then chapter 32, this cat named Elihu, who's been here the whole time, we just hadn't heard from him. Elihu finally speaks up. And what you hear him doing is taking the argument from the other three friends and saying, this is generally correct. And Job, what you're saying is also generally correct. And he's trying to like merge them together and it's just not going so hot because he is having difficulty with that. Then God shows up in chapter 38, blows the socks off of Job. Job gets so put in his place, he literally like covers his mouth. I spoke once, I spoke a second time. I'm done. I'm not doing it again. You're right, God. He just covers his mouth for the rest of the book. You don't hear from him again. And then he's vindicated, all that good jazz. All right, so here's our structure. We're going to look at Job here. Number one, after Job is introduced and all this stuff is taken away, chapter four, basically Job is accused of sin. Remember, whenever we read Proverbs, it was if A, then B. If you sin, there will be suffering. Bildad shows up and goes, hey, Job, um, I see you're suffering. And using logic, what must he then conclude? You must ascend. You had to have. That's how life works. So you see Proverbs hanging off of the lips of Bildad, Eliphaz, and Zophar. And then you see Ecclesiastes with Job speaking the truth of like, but I don't understand this. Like, this is not how this happened. Yeah? So let's pick it up in Job chapter 4, verse 17 and 18. This is, uh, this is Eliphaz speaking here, not Bildad, sorry. Eliphaz speaks and says, uh, can mortal man be right before God? What he's saying there is, Job, like, how can you say you're sinless? No one is sinless. Everyone has some kind of sin. Can a man be pure before his maker? Even his servants he puts no trust, and his angels he charges with error. And so Eliphaz is saying, like, come on, man, like, you've sinned. And then... Throughout this whole conversation, Job is going to maintain his innocence. Rightly so. God even says the dude is not sinning. He's not in error. And so he's going to continue to defend his innocence. In Job chapter 6, verses 28 and 30, this is what Job says. But now, please, looking at his friends, be pleased to look at me. Like, look at me into my eyeballs. I'm going to talk to you. Look at me. I will not lie to you. Please turn. Let no injustice be done. Turn now. My vindication is at stake. Can we understand how big a deal this is? Is there any injustice on my tongue? Show me where I've lied. Show me how I've sinned. Cannot my palate discern the cause of calamity? He's saying if I knew what the sin was and I could repent of it and keep this from happening, I would have. I didn't sin. And then the next friend steps in. Well, let's concoct a new scenario. Maybe you did this. Did you happen to look at a young lady when you shouldn't have? And Job's like, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look on anyone lustfully. That ain't it. Okay, cool, but did you steal something? 
no. And they just keep coming up with scenarios, right? And Job is going to continue to defend his innocence. And then, eventually, God's going to show up, and he's going to talk directly to Job. Let's pick it up. This is my favorite part of Job. Like, this is great. Go to Job chapter 38. Job chapter 38, verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind, out of the storm, and he says, Who is it that darkens counsel by words and without knowledge, without chokmah, without comprehension, without skill in knowing what's actually going on? Who is it that darkens this thing? And he's speaking to Job and he says, Dress for action like a man. King James, gird your loins. Go put your helmet and your cup on, son. We're going outside, and we're going to talk. That's basically what God says to him. Like, I'm going to start asking you questions, and you are going to start answering them. Yes? Okay. Get ready to fight. There you go. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Right? That's what we're going to do for the next three or four chapters. And what God does is he starts asking him. Let's pick it up there in verse 4. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Oh, you weren't created yet. So I guess you don't understand the cornerstones of the world. You don't understand that? Ah, crap. Uh, well, what about the heavenly storehouses laden with snow and hail and lightning? You got one of those in your pocket? Because I got a bunch. Oh, you don't know anything about that either. Okay. Well, do you know about how the deer and the goats, when they mate and give birth, do you know about that? Or did you create them? Let's start there. Did you create the goats? Because I did. And what God is demonstrating to Job is you couldn't comprehend all this stuff, even if you wanted to. And I am intimately involved in everything. And then he blows his mind with one other thing. Go to uh, chapter 40. This is my favorite part of Job. Job chapter 40. Pick it up in verse 3. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What am I going to say to answer you? I will lay my hand on my mouth. I spoke once and twice. I'm not going to do it again. I'm done. <laughs> and then we think, okay, yeah, he got the idea. And then God says, cool, now that you're quiet, I really want to show you something. Skip ahead to verse 15. Behold, behemoth. And he describes this massive land animal that is thick and huge. Think of like a hippopotamus on steroids that will kill you because it is behemoth and for no other reason. And he describes this beautiful, crazy creature that will kill Job in a heartbeat and says, I made that. What are you going to do to tame it? Nothing. And if that's not enough, skip down to verse 1 of chapter 41. Can you draw out Leviathan? Okay, cool. Maybe you can't handle the land animal. Cool, let's go get in a boat. Let's go get Leviathan. Let's go get this big, massive sea monster that will kill you because, you know, it's a sea monster. You're going to tie it on a string like a bird, like you would do for your daughter? Apparently that was the thing. Are you going to do that to this thing? And the answer is no. The point of what God is highlighting there is like, look at these two things. If you encounter them in the world, what's going to happen to Job? You will die. They will kill you, and that's the end of it. I made those things. Look at how cool they are. But God never actually says, but there's something wrong with them. They shouldn't do that. No, no, no. He says, I made them precisely this way, and they will kill you. They will ruin your day if you run into them. Have a good day. That's basically like the last words that get said about creation to Job. And then we see the rest of this in Job chapter 42. He repents, and he is having this confession that he trusts in God, and that ultimately God is vindicating him. He goes on there in chapter uh, 42, verse 7. And the Lord spoke these words to Job, and the Lord said to Eliphaz, the Temanite, my anger burns against you and your two friends. These worthless counselors, as Job called them, right? Useless friends. You and your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. What? You're telling me Job was right all along when he was railing against God and expressing his grief and angry at God? And God's like, he got it. He knows what's up. You two, not so much. Yeah? And then you skip down to verse 10, and the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. <laughs> These dudes were so wrong, Job had to go pray for them. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Here's the lesson. Job is the kind of person that we should emulate when life is rough.
and he never finds out why he suffered. And neither do you. You don't know why you suffer in, the, in day-to-day life. We don't know why Job suffered in his day-to-day life. But yet, Job is upheld as the type of guy that you should be like. You see that? Proverbs says, this is generally how life works. Ecclesiastes goes, yeah, but not always. And Job goes, yeah, for sure, let me tell you about it. And then he says, but here's what I do know. You can trust that he's good. Hey, have you ever heard about behemoth and leviathan? They'll smoke you. Isn't that awesome? And then we're left with like, well, what are we supposed to do with that? Be like Job. It's inferred that Job is the kind of person that we see that when life is not easy, that he still trusts in the Lord. Another way we could describe that is you have fear of the Lord. You rightly respect him. You understand that life is not always going to be hunky-dory. It's just not. But the Bible talks about those things. It doesn't leave us to our own devices to just rail against God and say, oh, he really messed things up for me. But we have to see Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job together because they together paint a picture of what life is really like. Yeah? We've got 10 minutes. What questions you got? <clears throat> I love Job. Job is great. Larry, yes, sir. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. So we talk about Ecclesiastes. There's this, uh, I think the break is in chapter 9 or 10. Um, when we talk about the, the structure of Ecclesiastes, um, you have the preacher who is speaking about this accumulated wisdom that he has. And what he's going to depict is there is this figure. There we go. There's this figure that he calls wisdom, and she is described as a person. And so there's like this metaphorical kind of imagery of this is what Lady Wisdom demands of life, and this is how it is best well lived. And it's spoken as like the preacher, the speaker, is addressing his sons. He's saying, son, this is what you need to do to make things go well for you in life. And it lays out some general observations, especially like in chapter 6 or 7. Yes, yes. Um, and to, to that point, I'm trying to find the exact reference, but um, in chapter 6 or so, <clears throat> uh, yeah, chapter 7 is where he starts really laying out there's a difference between wise living and foolish living. And foolish living is the kind of foolishness of the fool who basically says there's no way to know what God wants us to do, so there's no reason for you to even try. Just go do what you want. And what he's saying is that leads to utter destruction, right? Um, But there's an extended section that is all about um, don't marry a prostitute. It's basically basically what uh, Solomon says. Say again. Yes. Yes, use what I have given you and the experiences that you have, and these are general observations about life. Go and do likewise. But then when you get to chapter 10 or so, I'm sorry, I'm looking at Ecclesiastes this whole time. That's why I couldn't figure it out. But when you get to chapter 10 or so is when you start seeing a lot more of the Proverbs of Solomon. If you have a heading in your Bible in chapter 10, you see the Proverbs of Solomon. He actually tells you, A wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is sorrow to his mother. Verse 2, completely different subject. Treasures gained by wickedness do not profit, but righteousness delivers from death. You see, and then for the rest of the book, for the next, you know, 12 chapters, 20 chapters or so, rather, it's just all these proverbial statements, short, pithy statements that are meant to be read as a collection to gain wisdom. R.O., yes, sir. Yes, sir. The guys killed each other. Mm-hmm. See, this isn't, this isn't any different. Mm-hmm. Why should we be surprised? Yes. So, if I'm going to reformulate what you said there, R.O., with the, the incident that was downtown this weekend where these two guys got in a fight, one or both died? Yeah, so, I mean, there was this fight, and the idea is like, yeah, that is deplorable and that is horrible. And that's the way life is sometimes. 
Now, here's a question for us as believers in Jesus. What is that reason? Sin. Sin is the reason. And so, just to take a step back to say, why do we need wisdom literature? It's going to describe our sinful state and the natural results of sin, our suffering and death and pain. And what do we need from that? We need to be rescued from it. We need someone to provide salvation for us. And so this unified story, including wisdom literature, leads to Jesus. R.O. No different from you coming here mm -hmm. No. Yeah. These things should not shock us. But I think what. Help, go ahead. Praise God. Praise God. Yep. Mm hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so according to Proverbs, according to Proverbs, we'll see that, yes, there is blessing for righteousness and there is punishment for wickedness. That's not surprising. But what Ecclesiastes says, but yes, sometimes the guy who runs Enron gets off scot-free with billions of dollars. Just in the unjust. In fact, here's and on that point, one thing I didn't mention, but if you go to uh, Matthew 8 or Matthew 10, Jesus actually says to his disciples when he's sending them out to do ministry, he says, I'm sending you all out as sheep among wolves. Be as wise as serpents, but as innocent as doves. You should not be ignorant of this is how life actually works, but you had better know how to respond to it and remain innocent. So he even talks about wise living there. Paige. No, sin nature, broken nature of the world. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, so the question was, I made the comment that we know that stuff like this happens because of sin. I am going to be very cautious to ever correlate some natural disaster with some individual particular sin. I don't have warrant for that. But I absolutely have warrant to see in Genesis chapter 3 that creation as a whole was fractured by sin. Every aspect of our lives has been touched by sin. Remember when we talked about uh, the role of the Holy Spirit in interpretation? And we talked about the noetic effects of the fall? That even your rational thoughts and faculties have been affected by sin to where you don't function rationally the way that God designed you? Yes. Does that lead to poor choices? Absolutely. Does it lead to people abusing themselves and abusing others? Yes. Does it lead to disastrous consequences? Yes. But I, I don't know if I'm going to say that there was just one individual thing that started it all. But I can clearly say sin as a whole does address that, that issue. Other comments or questions? Yes. Satan is a roaring lion, yes. Mm -hmm. Yep, yeah, absolutely. We, we cannot... I'm sorry, I didn't hear that. Yeah, I mean, like, any time that we see that people are oppressed by the tyranny of sin, like, we know that's not God. We know that's not His designs for life. And I would say that's at a minimum effect of sin, yes, for sure. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes, I'm with you. All right, any other questions about wisdom literature? I know this is a whole lot, and it's a rough topic to kind of adjust to, like, just hearing on a Wednesday night in an hour, right? I know it's a whole lot. However, my hope is the next time you read Proverbs or Ecclesiastes or Job, you come well-armed with, okay, maybe if I don't understand this right now, let's just read through the rest of this and kind of view it all in one shot. And that'll help bring this into focus of what we're supposed to do with it. Yeah? All right, next week, we are going to be looking at uh, poetry. So we're talking about the Psalms, but we're also talking about prophets and the way that they write their poetry. We're also talking about lamentations. We're also talking about Proverbs. 
right? There's poetry in pretty much every single book in the Old Testament. So we had better learn how to read poetry as a genre and have some tools to deal with that as we move forward. So we're going to talk about the characteristics of poetry. We're going to talk about the different kinds of psalms that we have. Uh, there's penitential psalms. There's psalms of lament, psalms of thanksgiving and praise. We're going to talk about some of those, give examples, that kind of jazz. We're going to talk about how to read psalms at their most basic level with like the building blocks of Hebrew poetry, right? That's going to give us everything we need to move forward looking at Psalm 23. Yeah? So we're not going to look at some crazy text like Job and try to cover, you know, 42 chapters in one shot. We're going to look at one psalm and probably the most well-known one, period. Um, and that's going to be our example for next week. Yeah? All right. If you need other notes, you got other questions, I will be up here at the end. I will put them up there. We'll get you covered. Let me pray for us. We'll be done. Father, we thank you that you have given us everything we need for life and godliness and including difficult texts and difficult, difficult uh, portions of scripture um, like Job. And God, we know that you have um, designed life to work in a certain way and that we should pursue that wisdom uh, the way that you want us to. And so God, I pray that you would help us do that. Uh, that you would give us wisdom from above, as James 3 talks about, that we know that is uh, peaceable and that it is open to reason, but is also one that is informed by your spirit because it comes from above and it's not just from us. And so, Father, we pray that that would happen. And we pray along with James 1 that if any one of us are lacking wisdom, that we should pray for that wisdom in that situation and that we should not be double-minded and thinking that maybe you won't give it to us because we know that you give it to us single-mindedly. You give us what we need. And so, Father, I pray that if any of us are lacking wisdom about any individual situation, God, I pray you would give it to us and you would show yourself to be good and kind and glorious and worth our praise because of it. So Father, we give you this time. We pray that you would do more with it than we could on our own, that you would send your spirit to help us understand. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen. All right, if you got questions, I'll be up here.